This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, May 26, 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. It's no secret that military hardware has been finding its way to police departments, the people who protect and serve throughout the country. The military equipment buildup along the U.S. border among explicitly non-military agencies that is often then shared with local cops raises some pretty serious concerns over the accountability of local law enforcement, all in the name of border protection. Nathan Goodman is a postdoctoral fellow at the Department of Economics at NYU. We spoke last month in Las Vegas. Listeners to this podcast will know, uh, based on conversations I've had with Patrick Eddington, about the customs and border protection that they operate with relative impunity uh, within 100 miles of the U.S. border. Um, but you, Nathan, say that this is actually, it's worse than that. The uh, tactics and uh, methods used by uh, people who operate at the border trying to protect the U.S. border is becoming militarized. What do you mean by that? Yeah. So when we talk about militarization, that occurs along multiple dimensions. So one is the level of hardware. The military transfers a variety of forms of hardware to Customs and Border Protection. And this can be everything from Black Hawk helicopters to weaponry to unmanned aerial vehicles, better known as drones. And so a lot of tools that have originally been used in America's foreign interventions abroad come home and are then deployed at the border by the Border Patrol. So that's one dimension is the hardware dimension or the physical capital dimension. But there's also a training and practices dimension, and we might call that the human capital dimension. So many people within the Border Patrol are trained or engage in training exercises with the U.S. military, or their training is directly modeled on that of the U.S. military. And so the most extreme example of this is probably BORTAC, also known as the Border Patrol Tactical Unit. This is the Border Patrol's top SWAT team, and they were established during the 1980s in response to riots in immigration and naturalization service facilities. And of course, SWAT teams in general are a result of militarization. The first SWAT team was created in the Los Angeles Police Department by veterans of U.S. wars, specifically a Vietnam veteran who was trying to use the same types of tactics that he used in an elite force recon unit in the Vietnam War. Um, so that's how the SWAT team concept developed. And BORTAC in particular models their training on U.S. Special Forces, and they work directly with the armed forces in some capacities. So that's the human capital dimension. So we can think about border militarization in terms of physical capital, hardware, and human capital, skills, practices, and labor used to police the borders. So what about uh, local police? So this does wind up creating certain entanglements with local police departments along a couple margins. One margin is that Border Patrol agents have the ability to cross-deputize um, other federal, state, and local law enforcement officials with the powers of the Border Patrol. And so a lot of this started in the 1980s when they started cross-deputizing various DEA agents in order to do drug enforcement actions at the border. Um, but they also can cross-deputize uh, local and state law enforcement. And I don't know the magnitude of that, but... It raises serious concerns in terms of the additional powers that that could mean these uh, law enforcement agents would be given to 
violate individuals' civil liberties. The other dimension along which it affects local law enforcement, by the way, is that 1033 program transfers of hardware, they're encouraged to be used for both border security and drug enforcement purposes. And so we see additional use of these transfers when local law enforcement expresses an interest in using them for border security purposes. So anybody who's listened to this podcast related to uh, the uses of military tactics as domestic in domestic policing is probably familiar with uh, Abigail Hall, Chris Coyne, uh, and now you and anybody who has been following the issue of deputizing local police as federal agents would, I hope, would be familiar with a podcast we've done with Patrick Giacomo, the Institute for Justice, that these are substantial, uh, I guess, a substantial undermining of the the line between state and federal law enforcement and also between federal law enforcement and the military. Yeah, that's right. And so we see substantial undermining of both the federalist system and the ways in which our constitutional system is meant to protect the liberties of citizens. The police to function at the border, they have a purpose in in functioning at the border. That is, we have laws on the books that the, these uh, police are meant to enforce. That is to say, prevent unlawful entry into the United States and, and other uh, jobs that they have. But what is the cost to Americans, people who are born in the United States, people who are citizens of the United States, what is the what is the cost to them? So there are several types of costs that border militarization creates for American citizens. One is the undermining of their civil liberties. So one way to think about this is in terms of the loss of privacy rights. If drones are flying over your community and collecting uh, surveillance information, that undermines your privacy. Likewise, if border patrol builds a surveillance tower that's overlooking your community, as happened in the town of Arivaca, um, that will potentially undermine your privacy. And this can wind up extending beyond what you would ordinarily think of as border communities because the Border Patrol or Customs and Border Protection lends out their fleet of drones to other law enforcement agencies. Uh, The Electronic Frontier Foundation, a civil liberties group that focuses on digital privacy issues, they filed FOIA requests several years ago, and they found hundreds of instances of Customs and Border Protection lending out drones to state, local, and federal law enforcement agencies. And we know that this sort of activity has continued after the time period that they have this information from because we know, for example, that during the protests in the aftermath of the killing of George Floyd, Customs and Border Protection lent unmanned aerial vehicles or drones to state and local law enforcement that were then used to surveil protests. We can also find examples of North Dakota police using a drone that was lent to them by Customs and Border Protection in order to help them with policing of essentially a livestock dispute. So someone's livestock wandered onto a neighbor's property. The neighbor was a bit belligerent and not as willing to let police onto his property to take the livestock back to the original owner's property. And essentially the 
they decided to use a drone to monitor the situation, and that was lent to them by Customs and Border Protection. And so these are arenas far removed from what we think of as border policing. Yet when Congress authorizes the acquisition of drones for border security purposes, it's not as though those tools will only be used for the purposes that Congress intends. They will instead be shared among a variety of law enforcement uh, groups. And and for people who are familiar with the Patriot Act uh, that was implemented to fight terrorism, it was not very long before those uh, powers and those tools were being used for domestic law enforcement. That's right. So, for example, national security letters were frequently used for narcotics enforcement, uh, drug war enforcement, rather than for uh, just counterterrorism purposes. Nathan Goodman is a postdoctoral fellow in the Department of Economics at NYU. Subscribe to and give a rating to the Cato Daily Podcast on your podcast platform of choice and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 